27-year-old American serviceman Lieutenant Jim Daly was on the brutal front lines at Mount Samat on Bataan. The action was fierce, the enemy unrelenting in their continuous assault. 24 hours earlier, the young man, standing 5 foot 8 inches with black hair setting off the blue eyes in his oval-shaped face, had been in a reserve position away from the front line. But when that line began to disintegrate, Lieutenant Daly and the 45th Infantry were sent in to stabilize it, if that was even possible. Japanese forces had already spent four days relentlessly bombing the American and Filipino front lines and strongholds on Mount Samat, following that carnage with a flood of infantrymen. Thus, Lieutenant Daly found himself in the middle of an active, ruthless war zone. Suddenly, something hit his leg, knocking him down as he felt searing pain in his right leg. A machine gun bullet. He was certain of that. Daly dragged himself to a nearby tree, then pulled himself upright with his back against the trunk, which offered at least a bit of safety amid the onslaught. Blood seeping through his pant leg, he realized he needed help. Deciding to make a run for a safer situation, Daly took one step and fell flat on his face. He could not stand. Rolling to his back, he pushed himself with his arms and good leg across the jungle floor, searching and hoping he could find help. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather, Alma Salm, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you appreciate this podcast and believe it's important for people to know this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing it with a friend. Word of mouth is the main way people find new podcasts, and by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. A few months ago, I got a message on Ancestry.com from someone I didn't know. I saw you posted about the 45th Infantry Philippine Scout Battles. The message read, My dad was in the 45th and was a close friend of Bill Bianchi, who won the Medal of Honor. I would be delighted to share my dad's records with you. You may recall that I highlighted Bill Bianchi in episode 20. He was the third and final individual to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor during the action on Bataan in 1942. This ancestry message quite intrigued me. The best friend and fellow soldier of a serviceman I'd already highlighted on Left Behind? That's definitely someone I want to know more about. Now, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to find someone on Ancestry.com. First, both of you have to be website members. Second, you have to know their username or be able to identify them when you find them. My account has nearly 200 family trees on the site. Most of them start with the letters P-O-W. So if someone was looking for an Anastasia who published a podcast about POWs in the Philippines, you'd be fairly certain you found the right person when you ran across my profile on Ancestry. Anyway, back to that original message. I immediately replied, and within a couple weeks, 
Jim Daly had sent me a number of letters, reminiscences, pictures, and service records about his father, who also is named Jim Daly. This is pure gold for creating an episode. And soon afterward, Jim Daly and I were on the phone chatting about his father's time in the Philippines. And the result of all this is a little bit different of an episode between POW Jim's personal writings and son Jim's recollections of his father, the two men pretty much tell the whole story. I'll, of course, add in narration and context as needed. But for the most part, this episode is told in those two men's words, and they truly are the people who should tell the story. Let's jump in. James Walter Daly was born in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 23, 1915. He was the second child born to William and Nellie Daly. The father, William, for many years was a traveling salesman while Jim was growing up. Jim attended high school and then college in St. Paul. Here's his son, Jim, sharing about his father's educational years. He grew up in St. Paul, which is St. Mark's grade school. Went to an all-boys Creighton High School, which is a Catholic ROTC school. So he had four years of military at Creighton High School. He uh, played football. Uh, one of the things I remember about him, in his senior year, he broke his leg, and he got way better grades to the point that one of the teachers told the whole class, I wish a few more of you would break a leg. The St. Paul back in the roaring 20s and into the 30s was a gangster hideout. So there was a system where the uh, gangsters from all over the country would come to St. Paul, pay off the St. Paul police chief, and they could hide here as long as they didn't commit any crimes. So my dad delivered newspapers and he said, I knew we were delivering newspapers to John Dillinger, who lived in the apartments on Marshall Avenue. Everybody in St. Paul knew that he lived there, but the FBI was looking nationwide and couldn't find him. As a quick refresher, John Dillinger was a gangster during the early days of the Great Depression. He was often touted as a Robin Hood type figure in the media and is credited as the impetus for J. Edgar Hoover to form the FBI. After graduating from the college in 1934, he studied engineering at the University of Minnesota. In the late 1930s, he attended the Citizens Military Training Camp based at Fort Snelling in St. Paul. Held throughout the United States, these camps were held one month every summer from 1921 through 1940 and they were intended to allow male citizens to obtain basic military training without obligation to the U.S. Army, the National Guard, or the Reserves. But individuals could receive U.S. Army commissions through these camps, and to do so, a man had to complete four summers of camps. Jim Daly was one of only 5,000 men throughout the United States of more than 400,000 men during the camp's 20 years of operation to become commissioned officers. His son, Jim, shared. He ended up number two in that. I have a photo of him in his uniform. So dad got this commission, and shortly after that, he was offered the opportunity for one year active duty. Jim accepted and went on to attend one year of infantry school at Fort Benning in Georgia from August to November, 1940. And then it came time for a duty station assignment. Here's son Jim again. His choice of duty station was either Greenland or the Philippine Islands. 
and he didn't know much about either one, so he went over to St. Thomas College to a military man, a sergeant apparently, who he knew there. This guy said, hey, I was in the Philippine Islands. As a young second lieutenant, you're going to be dressed in beautiful white dinner jackets. You'll be expected to go to the ambassador's residence for dances with the young Filipino girls. He said, it's just a, a beautiful assignment. So dad picked the Philippines. Jim left the United States from San Francisco in late April 1941. But before he left, the family got together. The grandma referred to in the forthcoming memory is Lieutenant Jim Daly's mother, Nellie. Just before dad shipped out to the Philippines, they got together in the backyard of his parents' house. The three boys, dad's the second oldest, then his sister, then the youngest, and dad was in uniform, and grandma is frowning the whole time. She told them all, this is the last time we will ever all be together. She was just convinced. Turns out, Nellie was right. And I'll get into that a bit later on. But before we leave St. Paul, I need to bring up one other person in Lieutenant Jim Daly's life, Irene Peterson, his girlfriend. Irene was a few years younger than Jim and went to school with his younger sister. I don't have details on when or how they got together, but by the time Jim left for the Philippines, they were an item and seemed to have had some kind of understanding, such as she would wait for him. Second Lieutenant Jim Daly arrived in the Philippines on May 8, 1941. The day before, he sat on the deck of his transport ship and wrote a letter to his mother. Mother, we are approaching Manila. The trip has been nice, but I'll be glad to see something besides water. Oh, my assignment? The best outfit in the Army, Philippine Scouts. Lieutenant Bianchi is going to the 45th Infantry with me. We don't know our assignments yet. I think I'll have to move the storm is approaching. The wind is coming up in a hurry. Rain. By the way, this letter is being read by Lieutenant Daly's son. He will read all of Lieutenant Daly's letters and reminiscences throughout the episode. Well, we passed the storm and are now passing between the islands. The shore is plenty rocky, lots of vegetation. Some volcano islands stick up just like cones. We just passed a native sailboat a few moments ago. It looked like a Chinese boat you see pictures of, and it had long sticks out on each side to keep it from tipping. Some porpoises were jumping and diving in the water near the boat, close to one of the islands we passed. Six bombers just came whizzing over us. They certainly looked good, just like home. After the war, Lieutenant Daly wrote some reminiscences of his first days in the Philippines that summer. I reported for duty in the Philippine Islands May 15th of 1941 at Fort McKinley, just outside of Manila. Assigned to Company B, 1st Battalion of 45th Infantry Philippine Scouts. I moved to Bataan on July 4th, where the 1st Battalion was assigned to unload and store ammunition in the jungle above Maraveles. In several of his letters, he wrote about the temperature and the humidity in the islands, which was very different from the northern Midwest where he was raised. He often wrote that he didn't mind the heat, but as he later told his son, there were some issues. Dad was Irish, fair-skinned. I remember him sitting on in the shade at the lake and getting sunburned from the reflection off the lake. I said, Dad, what did you do in the, in the Philippines? He said, well, I'd burn 
and then I'd blister, and then I'd peel, and then I'd do it all over again. And the Filipinos, they have never seen anybody do that. He said, but it was just constant, always getting sunburned, always blistering. Lieutenant Daly became close friends with fellow Minnesotan Bill Bianchi. As Jim noted in the letter to his mother, the two servicemen knew each other during their journey to Manila. We're not certain when the friendship began, but they were likely drawn together as native Minnesotans in a foreign country. They may have also had some kind of distant family or mutual friend connection. Lieutenant Daly later told his son of his friendship with Bianchi. I know they hung out together. Dad went out on patrols routinely with the Filipino troops. And so he was he was learning Tagalog. They went to a movie in Manila. They had usherettes. And he said, there's two young Filipino usherettes. And he saw one of them nudge the other one and kind of point at the two of them and say something in Tagalog. He had no idea what she said, but he had learned the phrase, oh, you're only joking. So he said that to her in Tagalog, and he said, and you wouldn't think a Filipino could blush. But this girl turned as many shades of red as she possibly could, because she thought he knew exactly what she had just said. Beyond the friendships and good times in Manila, Lieutenant Daly was aware of the war raging in Europe and the growing tensions in the Pacific. In October 41, he wrote, Dear Mother, while I'm a busy man, my promotion to first lieutenant is effective November 1st, 1941. Things are rapidly coming to a head here. Germany closes on Moscow. Japan gets permission from Portugal to use an island near Australia as a base for a new airline. Germany sends a new minister to Bangkok. Word has been given out that areas near Australia are mined. This is the setup. Japan may move on Russia if Germany is successful, or she may stand by and keep the British and us worried as to her next move. Don't worry about me. I will call you on the telephone early Sunday morning about or a week or maybe two weeks before Christmas. I will try to time it at about 7 to 8 a.m. You can figure out anything you want to ask me, and I'll do my best in three minutes. But First Lieutenant Jim Daly probably wasn't able to keep that Christmas date. He later wrote, I was in Manila the morning the war started, December 8, 1941. Leaving Manila, I saw the Philippine Army herding Japanese civilians down the street at gunpoint. We immediately moved to our assigned positions along China Seacoast near Bagat. First Battalion had approximately 30 miles of coastline to protect. We set up observation points with telephone connection to our command post. In early January 1942, Jim's unit was part of the first battle on Bataan at Abuke. I described this action in episode 16. Here's Lieutenant Daly's post-war recollections of that battle. We were put in reserve, but moved up to the front line at Abukai Hacienda, where the Philippine Army developed a break in the line. The confusions and lack of maps and lack of food were the hardest part. Japs moved around us at night and were behind us at times. Our left flank was unprotected except for patrols because the 31st Infantry Philippine Army were unable to move up to their assigned positions. After about 10 days, we made a night withdrawal. Our trucks moved in dark and packed up all extra ammunition and heavy machine guns. Lieutenant Daly is referring to the American and Filipino withdrawal from Abuke to the second front line on Bataan. 
That movement happened January 22nd through 26th, 1942. Immediately after this withdrawal, what became known as the Battle of the Pockets ensued. As some Japanese forces had pushed their way through the still being organized Allied front line and became caught in pockets behind those lines. The 45th Infantry, which Lieutenant Daly and Bill Bianchi belonged to, was again called from reserve positions to help destroy these enemy pockets. And this is when and where Bianchi's actions earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor. I go into the details of this action in episode 20. But to give a brief overview here, a platoon of 45th Infantry Scouts were assigned to destroy two machine gun nests in one of the three pockets. Bianchi volunteered to lead part of it, and Lieutenant Daly was in that same group. General Douglas MacArthur described what happened next. When the rifle platoon of another company was ordered to wipe out two strong enemy machine gun nests, Lieutenant Bianchi, volunteered of his own initiative, advanced with the platoon, leading part of his men. When wounded early in the action by two bullets through the left hand, he did not stop for first aid but discarded his rifle and began firing a pistol. Here's Lieutenant Jim Daly's account of what happened from a letter he wrote a month later to his girlfriend Irene back home. I guess you'll be glad to know that I've come through all the battling so far with not even a scratch. Came pretty close to one up on the front, received two Jap machine rifle bullets through my pants. That is as close as I intend coming though, my sweet, so don't worry too much. I am still in command of the same company as before the war. I was recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross for going out in the Jap lines and bringing in two wounded men of my company. Lieutenant W.C. Bianchi has just been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for the same actions I was in. We were out together that day and really had some fun. He got our country's highest award. We are pretty proud of him. I was glad to be with him when he earned it. He's a great kid. Got shot six times, but is back for duty now and is okay. Lieutenant Daly's words really had some fun. I think shows just how young these servicemen were. I mean, they were attacking live machine gun nests. It's not really my definition of fun. But hey, I'm not a 27-year-old serviceman in the 1940s. Plus, he was probably downplaying things a bit so his girlfriend wouldn't worry. Too much. We see perhaps similar downplaying in a letter Jim wrote to his brother John on the same day he wrote to Irene. Dear John, well, it's 88 days we are still going strong. We have plenty to eat and I'm in better shape now than was when the war started. I've been under plenty of fire, but my job keeps me back on the front line most of the time. I lost all my possessions at Fort McKinley, but I have enough to get along. I know mother and dad must worry a lot, but I would rather be here than be on the way here. Is Dick in the army yet? With his newspaper experience, he would be very useful in a number of different places. Don't worry about me. My only worry is that you will all worry about me. Well, keep them flying this way until I see you again. The Dick, who Jim mentions, is his youngest brother. Dick would indeed join the U.S. Army and then serve in Europe during the war. Also, did you notice what Jim said about food? We have plenty to eat. This is another place where I wonder if Jim, as other servicemen did, is making lighter of the situation than it really was. Jim later described to his son the food in a little different light. 
they ate monkeys, they ate snakes. He said water buffalo was just so tough. Whatever they could get their hands on, they ate. While we're on the subject of animals, Lieutenant Daly adopted a baby monkey while on Bataan. The mother was apparently run over by a truck, so he took care of it. He taught it to lay on its back and drink milk from a Coke bottle with a nipple put on it. I have a picture of Jim with that baby monkey on Facebook and Instagram. The links, as usual, are in the show notes. Those letters to girlfriend Irene and brother John were written on March 6, 1942. They went out with the last mail from Bataan. I've come across many servicemen's letters with this same date. Things on Bataan, at that moment, were rather slow. Japan having stopped its offensives while waiting for reinforcements and additional equipment to arrive. So the American men were able to write home and had fairly good assurance that the letters would actually get home. And they would get home, but not until well after Bataan fell and the men had become POWs or worse, perished. Nine days after Lieutenant Daly wrote his letters, General MacArthur left the Philippines under order from President Roosevelt. And two and a half weeks after that, the Japanese began their final Bataan assault. Lieutenant Daly and the 45th were moved to the front line on Mount Samat on April 5th. He later wrote, I was wounded on April 6th after moving up from reserve positions to plug the hole on the front line when Japan broke through. We moved about 1,700 hours on April 5th after a meal of rice. After an all-night move of about 10 miles, we moved up to stabilize the line. Lieutenant Daly's son continues the story. It was up on the front line and the Japanese machine gun opened up and hit him. So it knocked him down, so he decided he was going to make a run for it. So he said he, he knew his leg was injured, so he backed himself up against a tree, and then he decided he was going to throw his rifle away. So he took the bolt out of it and threw it in the jungle so the Japanese couldn't use the rifle. And he said he took one step and fell flat on his face. So then he knew it was serious. He said so he unbuckled his gun belt and tucked his 45 inside his pants and then started pushing himself on his back with one good leg through the jungle. Lieutenant Daly picks up the story from here. After crawling some distance, Captain Bob Roberts helped me get to a place where they could get me on a stretcher. I was taken to a shelter where Dr. Kostecki cleaned and packed the wound with gauze. Captain Roberts had lightly taken Lieutenant Daly to one of three triage clearing stations just behind the front lines. At that time, a military medical history reads, The attack developed quickly, with the result that the three clearing stations crowded with casualties were in danger of being overrun by the enemy. Convoys of buses evacuated patients from the front, giving priority to stations nearest the front. In all, more than 7,000 casualties were transported to rear areas during the period 2nd through the 7th of April. And Lieutenant Jim Daly was one of those casualties. He wrote, that night I was moved by bus partway down the mountain. Asked for food, but fell asleep before I got any. The following morning, they moved a group of us by bus. We crossed the airfield where Aveli's at night during a bombing. The truck stopped and all that were able lay on the ground. Eventually, the bus carrying Lieutenant Daly arrived at Bataan Field Hospital Number 2, where the majority of frontline casualties during this time went. In the six days before Bataan fell, 
the hospital went from 2,700 patients to more than 7,000. Part of the reason for this jump in numbers is that the Japanese severely bombed Bataan Field Hospital No. 1 on April 5th, and most of the patients at that hospital were transferred to Hospital No. 2 just before Lieutenant Daly arrived. General Ed King, who was over all Allied forces on Bataan at the time, lamented, Already our hospital, which is filled to capacity and directly in the line of hostile approach, is within the range of enemy light artillery. Despite the hospital's overcrowding, Lieutenant Daly did receive medical attention. After being x-rayed, standing on boards in front of an x-ray machine, Dr. Weinstein decided that they could not operate but would put me in a cot. I asked one of the nurses, when do you eat around here? I'm finding that I had not had food for two days. She brought a small can of condensed milk that had been heated. She fed me while I was laying on the operating table. The nurses were told to get out because the Japs were moving in, and Dr. Weinstein finally put me in a cast. I can't say enough for Dr. Weinstein, who worked day and night in the hospital, trying to help all of us. By the way, Lieutenant Daly wrote many praises about Dr. Weinstein, but said he didn't know what happened to the doctor after Baton. But I can tell you that. Dr. Weinstein was liberated from a POW camp in Japan and survived the war. Lieutenant Daly's x-rays revealed a compound fracture in his right femur, which shattered the bone's head and neck. So basically, the bone where his right leg entered the hip socket was shattered. From what I've gathered, Lieutenant Daly's cast was a body cast of some sort. It was imposing, and he was completely immobile while in it. The army nurses were ordered to evacuate the hospital on the evening of April 8th, so probably a day after Lieutenant Daly arrived. The nurses didn't want to leave their patients. One later recalled, We knew what we had to do, take care of these guys, and we were willing to do anything we had to do to do it. However, in the end, all the nurses complied. Some were literally ordered to stop what they were doing, put down what they were holding, and leave. Another nurse recalled, Walking out in the middle of an operation with hundreds lined up under trees waiting for surgery was devastating to me. This I have to live with for the rest of my life. Episode 25 tells the story of the nurses leaving hospital number two and how they nearly didn't escape Baton. The next day, Baton fell and a small group of Japanese infantry took command of Hospital No. 2 at 5 p.m. on April 9, 1942. I have tried, but I have failed, to find details of what hospital life was like after Japanese forces took over. And it's something I'd really like to know. I don't want to be insensitive, but honestly, I am somewhat surprised that the Japanese didn't just kill the hospital patients. Mere days before surrender, they had deliberately bombed and strafed Hospital No. 1, despite the large, obvious Red Cross marking it as a hospital. And Episode 22 has details on that war crime, as well as the Easter morning miracle that occurred during it. And think how servicemen who were ill while marching up Bataan were bayoneted, shot, or thrown into ravines. I guess considering that treatment, it's a little surprising in a good way, that Japanese would continue to care for hospitalized patients. The best description I found of hospital life under Japanese control 
comes from Lieutenant Daly himself. Keep in mind, he was absolutely immobile during his time there. This was not a hospital, as you know, but a space cleared out of the jungle. The Japanese left their doctors in charge after marching through our areas and taking watches, rings, etc. We got rid of notebooks, guns, and anything they would take, like knives, etc. Conditions were very bad. Dysentery was a way of life. The Japs took most of the medicine and one had to eat under the mosquito net to avoid malaria, mosquitoes, dengue fever, and day-flying mosquitoes and hordes of flies in the area. At one point, ants found their way into my bed and down inside my cast. They had to pour ether down inside the cast to stop the biting, then clean the bed. After that, we placed cans of water under each bed leg to keep them from getting into the beds. The cast stayed on until July because bones without men on the rice diet. Two medical men took me out in an open spot to get some sunlight. Another part of hospital life would have been the almost constant bombardment from Corregidor Island. Once Bataan fell, Corregidor opened up its heavy artillery, aimed at the southern part of the peninsula. Bataan Death March survivors recall Corregidor's cannons hitting groups of marchers. And both field hospitals were well in range of those heavy artillery guns. Lieutenant Daly spent two months at the two field hospitals after surrender. At some point, he was sent to field hospital number one. And here's him describing his final transfer off of Bataan in June 42. We were transferred to Billman Prison, Manila, a condemned Philippine prison. It had been condemned for Philippine prisoners because of rats, bedbugs, cockroaches. We slept on concrete floors, but I was lucky to have a blanket. They removed the cast shortly after reaching Billabid. Billabid Prison was the main hospital for American POWs during their captivity in the Philippines. It was overseen by Navy doctors who had been captured on Corregidor Island in May 1942. Lieutenant Daly later credited those Navy doctors for his healing. His medical record adds more to his recovery story. 10 July 1942. The wound was healed, but bed rest was continued. In July 1942, he was allowed up on crutches. In December, he was allowed to bear weight on the injured extremity. During this time, he was under supervision. Patient did very little walking, however, due to starvation diet and malnutrition diet as a POW. At the time he became ambulatory, he noticed his right hip was stiff. The right knee had very little motion. He did exercise, some weightlifting, and was able to regain about 30 degrees of motion. In fall 1943, Jim's family learned of his POW status when they received a note from him, which read, Wounded, not seriously, fractured right femur. Hope you, Dad, John, Grace, and Dick are well. Say hello to Irene. Please write. Love to all. Again, I think we see Lieutenant Daly downplaying his wound and condition to his family. Also, at this time, his youngest brother, Dick, was in parachute infantry training in North Carolina. On the night of June 5th to 6th, 1944, Dick parachuted into Normandy ahead of the D-Day landings. In a letter home, Dick described it as, quote, a few tough days, close quote. Sadly, Dick died in Holland in October 1944, thus tragically proving correct his mother's pre-war prophecy regarding the family's last time being together. 
Dick's wartime experience mirrored that of Easy Company from the book and miniseries Band of Brothers. Lieutenant Jim Daly remained at Billabid Prison for the remainder of his two years and seven months of captivity. His injury and lasting ailments prevented him from doing hard labor that the Japanese used the able-bodied POWs for. Thus, Lieutenant Daly wasn't transferred to various POW camps in the Philippines and in Japan, as most others were. The daily food ration at Bilibid was mainly rice. Here's Lieutenant Daly's son recounting a conversation about the food at Bilibid. I asked more than once, how can you still eat rice? He said, if it wasn't for rice, I wouldn't be alive. But he said they got about a cup of rice per day and they learned not to take the worms out of it because they needed that protein. They would do things like they would steal banana peels out of the Japanese garbage, lay them out in the sun until they turned black, and then powder them and put them in hot water, and that was their coffee. He said all these people just talk about their favorite recipes. Dad refused to go talk to those guys. All I want to talk about is food. I don't want to talk about food. As the end of the war approached, the prisoners could see American planes flying over Manila, and the hungry POW's talk turned to the approaching Yanks with tanks and steaks and cakes. Also, after the war, some of the Billabid POWs apparently created a cookbook filled with their favorite recipes that they had talked so much about during their imprisonment. One night in early 1945, according to Lieutenant Daly's son Jim, the Japanese set up a machine gun at the at the front entrance, and Dad told his buddy, he said, "Let's go back and sleep on the floor way in the back." He says, we have our cots up here. Dad said, I know, but the machine guns pointed in, not out. So they went and slept as far in the back as they could. When they woke up in the morning, the Japanese were gone. And then Americans broke in and nobody knew who they were. They were strange uniforms and strange helmets that they had never seen. And they had to do a little convincing to open the doors that they were really Americans. When the POWs inside Bilibid first realized that their Japanese captors had left, They locked the prison doors and even positioned their own guards to keep unwanted visitors out of the prison. Around 6 p.m. on February 5, 1945, a rifle butt knocked a hole in one of the prison's wooden shutters. The prisoners wondered if they'd find friendly Filipinos or angry Japanese guards. As it turns out, American forces had completely surrounded the prison walls and were trying to figure out what was inside. They had assumed they'd find Japanese forces, but were surprised when they discovered 1,200 POWs, 700 military personnel, and 500 civilians, including women and children. The surprised liberators passed cigarettes to the prison bars as they announced, We've come to get you out. A nearly 30-year-old Lieutenant Jim Daly was free once again. Also freed with Lieutenant Daly were sailors John Burke from Episode 9 and Henry Goodall from Episode 14. By the way, American POWs in the Philippine Islands not recognizing and, at first, not trusting the American liberators was a common occurrence as far as I've come across. When Lieutenant Daly and his comrades were imprisoned, they were wearing World War I helmets. When the American liberators showed up in 1945, They wore newly designed helmets and uniforms. The Yanks and their tanks did, in fact, bring steaks and cakes, or at least more food than the POWs were used to. Lieutenant Daly's son shares, They just started gorging themselves on whatever they had, and they throw up 
and then go eat some more and get sick until the doctors got to them. When they were liberated, they got Red Cross food packages that the Japanese had been holding on to. And one of them had raisins in it. And a bunch of the guys donated their raisins to the priest so he could let them ferment for a day or so and make wine to see mass. Two weeks after liberation, Lieutenant Jim Daly left the Philippines, finally bound for his homeland. He first recuperated at a military hospital in Texas, where his mother visited him. Jim's son told me, I know Grandma went to see him in the hospital in Texas, and they were so starved. I mean, Dad weighed 105 pounds. He was 5'8", 105 pounds when he came out of prison camp. On his diet was in Texas was two malted milks and two beers every day. Grandma and Grandpa did not believe in alcohol. I don't know where that came out of that Irish family, but they did not believe in that. Grandma would shoot out the doctors that they would put beer on his diet, but they were just trying to get him to gain weight. After some time in Texas, Lieutenant Daly transferred to a hospital closer to home in Chicago. And this brought him closer not only to his family, but to his girlfriend, Irene, who had waited for him during the war. Once he was in Chicago, he had to do physical therapy Monday through Friday. So as soon as he was done on Friday afternoon, he would take the train home. Well, meantime in Chicago, they could go out of the town every night. There were nurses from the Philippines who were also at the same hospital. So basically, Sunday through Thursday night, he was out of the town, Mom said. So he'd come home on Friday, and she's ready to go out. And all he wants to do is you know, stay at his parents' house and just go hang out with mom. That always irritated mom a little bit. So he'd see her on weekends. It sounds like almost every weekend he came home until he was discharged from the hospital in Chicago. And just hanging out at Jim's parents' home perhaps wasn't all Irene may have been irritated about. He came home and said he really hadn't had time to write. He'd been busy all week. And mom said, well, you had time to write to Mary Jo Smith in Montana. Dead silence. It was a friend of hers, and she said, oh, by the way, I heard from Jim Daly in Chicago. These stories aside, Jim and Irene's relationship seemed to pick up easily after his return. They married in 1946, and the next year their son James E. Daly was born. He, of course, is the son you've been hearing from throughout the episode. The couple went on to have two more children. Despite his desire to stay in the Army, Jim was retired 70% disabled in early 1947. It always makes me a little sad when I hear about POW officers who spent their 20s training to be career Army officers, only to spend six weeks to three months fighting on baton before being wounded and or imprisoned, and once home, had to retire from their chosen career. With the Army no longer a career option, Jim went to work for his father. My grandfather was part owner of a wholesale upholstery company, so they sold upholstery material. Dad went to work there on the city desk, so he worked there his whole, that was his whole career. I found out years later he had a brief stint at the post office, but a friend who later worked at the post office said, yeah, I said, it turned out they all resented the Army guys coming back. So they put him on the hardest physical job they could find, like lugging 50-pound sacks of mail on the trucks, and he just couldn't do it. So he had a brief stint there and then went back to, it was called the Hardenburg Company. And so he worked there until he retired. Like most liberated POWs, Jim brought home not-so-pleasant mementos of the war, 
some psychological, some physical, which he had to work through. When he first came back, he did have nightmares. And then he wanted to buy a German 35-millimeter camera. And there was one of the newspapers, and he called the guy up, and the guy said, yeah, come on over. So mom waited in the car. Dad came back to the car, and he was just ashen white, shaking like a leaf. He opened the door, and the guy was Japanese. But later on, I remember in high school, if I had a doctor appointment downtown or a dentist appointment, I'd walk over and get a ride home with him. And one day he said, well, we're going to stop on this upholstery shop and drop off some material for this guy so he doesn't have to pay shipping. So, okay. He was friends with the guy, had been doing this for a long time, and the guy happened to be Japanese. Didn't bother Dad then, but right afterwards. Many years later, and I'm talking, say, in the 60s, he uh, noticed a lump above his knee. It was very pronounced. So he went out to the veterans' hospital, and they removed it and found it to be a bullet fragment. And over the years, he had several more. And what happens is the body encapsulated it, basically calcified around it, and they worked their way down his leg until they got to the knee and then started to protrude. The other thing I remember growing up is that in his right hip, there was a hole surrounded by skin, but about the size of my little finger going up into his hip. And it always fascinated me as a kid that that was the bullet hole. It never completely healed over. That hole was always there. Jim, however, did not let those physical ailments stop him from living life. His hip ended up fusing solid. He got more flexibility in his knee. One leg was shorter than the other. So he had shoes with a, a heel lift. So he still walked with a slight limp. But he could pretty much do everything that he had done before. So he had to sit with his leg extended. And he kiddingly referred to it as his wooden leg. I remember some of my friends saying, does he really have a wooden leg? And he has to sit with it extended out. So when he drove, his right foot was up on the transmission hump, but he drove with his left foot. Real quick, this was back in the days of front bench seats and stick shifts. So he had a left gas pedal installed, just a, a little lever that went up over and pressed on the gas pedal, which was to the right because he couldn't bring his hip up to touch the gas or the brake. So anyhow, he drove with his left foot for many years. In Minnesota, they always ask you, do you have any physical handicaps? I just checked the box. And when I was, well, I was already a deputy sheriff. So back in the mid-70s, they called him up and said, so you have this physical disability? And he told them what it was. And they said, well, have you ever taken a driving test since you came back? And he said, well, no. And they were like, well, you have to take one. I was like, okay. And then, of course, this is, as a deputy, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. I said, so, Dad, do you want me to take you out practice driving? Uh, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but he wasn't too happy about the idea. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, just as far as you taking the test, you know. And so we drive up to the corner, and I said, you know, you really didn't look long enough. Both I looked both directions. Dad, I'm just telling you, you didn't look long enough both directions. Okay, so we drive around a little bit. I said, so when you came up to that stop sign, you have to stop for the stop sign. I stopped. I know, Dad, but you have to stop you know, just before the stop sign. Get over to the right. Okay. So he went, he didn't tell us. He went and took the test. Of course, he passed it. But the only things he got marked off on were the two things that I had pointed out to him. It's the sun, of course, that's wonderful. <laughs> 
we went to a neighbor's lake cottage for the weekend and they were water skiing. And dad said, you know, I think I'd like to try to water ski. I used to snow ski a lot. And mom's like, you can't do that, you'll break your leg. No, he said, I, I think I can do it. And mom is just, no, no, you're gonna break your leg. You can't, don't even try. Well, I just wanna try it once. So after a couple times, he got up, he brought him all the way around the lake to drop him back at the dock. And instead of dropping out, he dropped a ski and went back a lake once more around the lake on one ski just to show that he could do it. Never asked to do it again. <laughs> just wanted to prove to himself he could do it. 69-year-old Jim Daly died January 12, 1985 in Minnesota. My dad died of cancer. It was a cancer behind his stomach they kind of found accidentally surging for what they thought was an ulcer and he died 18 months after it was diagnosed and so he had excellent care at the VA hospital but of course our wondering is did he have lingering effects from the malaria and dinghy fever and all the other diseases that they had that just weakened him. Jim rests at Calvary Cemetery in St. Paul, Minnesota. I asked his son, Jim, what is the legacy your father left his family? And he told me, I think his sense of peace. We have food, we have a roof over our head, we're good. He was just very satisfied with life as it was. He and his brother were more the Irish willing to get into a fight. After he came back, he was just so calm. We're alive, that's all we need. So I think I inherited that. Just a very peaceful man. And I think that's his legacy. In closing, I'll leave you with the words from Jim Daly's eulogy. If you want to know the real measure of a man, you might want to know how long-suffering he was. You should try to find out how patient he was in trial. You should try to learn how many people he comforted in their sorrow. How often he showed his strength by being meek. How many sick and suffering did he touch? If you want the real measure of a man, look at how deeply he loved and cared for his wife and children. Look at how he cared about and treasured his friends. Jim was all those things, and he enjoyed being all those things. He let even the pain and suffering of nearly three years in a prison camp make him a better man. He made the ordinariness of life, hunting, fishing, visiting friends, playing cards, working, and most of all, being with his family, shined like extraordinary virtue. It's easy to take the real measure of Jim Daly. While Jim was healing in Baton's field hospitals, across a narrow channel on Corregidor Island, an army nurse, who had been evacuated from Baton, boarded a biplane for a midnight escape to Australia. But she never arrived. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Jim Daly's story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Jim Daly. Tyler Harmon, and Jake Harenberg. 
Special thanks to Jim Daly, without whose efforts this episode would not have been. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. And I'll be back next time with a daring escape that didn't go as expected.